Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Phil Craig. And I'm Andrew Loney. And together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandalmongers podcast. Hello, well, Andrew. Big subject this, hello, big subject this week. One of the all-time greats who very rarely is 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 part of scandalmongering. Indeed, indeed. Um, actually, do you know what? I was going to, um, rather than starting with the normal plea for more subscriptions, which is probably making people rather tired of us, um, I thought um, it would be fun to read you a couple of reviews that have just come in. On Apple. Wonderful podcast. Most intelligent exploration I've heard, says Pendulum 2 in Australia, <laughs> talking about Diana, actually, the Diana program. And this is what I like, also from somebody interested in the royals, uh, Princess Diana Books via Apple Podcasts in Canada. We have fans all over the world. Insightful and deeply knowledgeable hosts. That's you and me, Andrew, by the way. Gosh. With, with respected guests. Not your average drivel. <laughs> High class drivel. <laughs> yeah, so we're better than average drivel. We finally made it. <laughs> that was very pleasing. Well, <laughs> well, we got more more of that to come. Yeah, um, well, I, I, don't, I don't think Jeffrey, who was our guest today, does drivel. He's a very serious man, isn't he? Yes, he is, and and he's written a serious book, which I think is is. Has been a bit ignored by some critics because I think um, uh, Churchill is, is such a difficult subject to criticise. But uh, I, I think we both read it and we're very impressed with it. I am actually really impressed, and I'm a bit of a Churchill fan. I must be honest. You and I have talked about 1940 more than once, um, but of course, you know, the more you read of him and the diaries of the people who are close to him, there is all those cringy moments, even in 1940, even in his finest hour. Well, you think, crikey, you know, someone like that would never be allowed anywhere near number 10 today. Nowhere near. No. And the pendulum, I suppose, is swinging. Um, you know, I suppose when you discover also his financial affairs, which are pretty dodgy, that would have really cut him out full stop. It does show, though, how things were sort of accepted. And I'm not just talking about 
some of the really unpleasant um, prejudices and outright racist language he would use. But also his just weird personal habits, you know, his famously kind of lack of concern about his own body and people seeing himself half naked or fully naked, sort of wandering around in a loosely tied dressing gown, kind of, and then suddenly breaking into a kind of simulation of bayonet drill. You know, and usually, usually drunk. Makes him human. Yeah, I think the fact that he was drunk, I mean, and drinking so prodigiously, I mean, does slightly sort of make you wonder whether his judgments were sensible. Um, but I think clearly, you know, we can talk about this with Jeffrey, but I mean, clearly his, his views on military strategy, we always thought he was good on that, clearly weren't very good. Uh, um, but, you know, I suppose on the big questions, he got it right. Or maybe this is all in hindsight. Well, on the one very, very big question of the Second World War, <clears throat> he certainly did. I remember, you know, when I was growing up in my poor, starving, working-class northern background, you wouldn't understand, Andrew. You know, we are outdoor plumbing and tin bath by the fire. Well, maybe not by the fire. But anyway, I remember all my kind of left-wing uh, friends and relatives reminiscing about uh, politics in the past. You know, and whenever Churchill spoke before the Second World War, he would be met with cries of, war about Gallipoli! You know, he, he carried the stain of that. No, really interesting, because, I mean, I, I assume that those who work closely with him, a bit like Mark Batten, you know, distrusted him. Uh, but those who, in a sense, didn't know him very well, but who he spoke to because of his powers of oratory and, uh, and his general persona, actually, so it was a sort of mass market appeal. But clearly there were suspicions there. We see this with the royal family, too. We always imagine the Queen Mum was popular during the war, but actually that's not always always the case. Interesting. Um, yeah, he was... You know, if he had died in 1939, hit by a bus. In fact, I think he was almost knocked down by a car in New York, famously, when he looks the yes, wrong way crossing the, the road. In the 20s, yeah. Oh, right. Well, it, yeah, he would have been remembered as a failure, you know, as yeah. a slightly embarrassing reactionary failure who felt like he was from a different time. You know, he, was he, he, was, he took part in a cavalry charge in, like, 1898. Yeah. Um, and I well, remember writing... Sorry, when I was writing... Andrew, sorry. sorry. No, I mean, it shows you there are second acts in politics. But, yeah, when you were writing. Well, I was just, I remember writing, thinking uh, about 1940, you know, the thinking of the people on the beach at Dunkirk. Their fathers, maybe even their grandfathers, would have served under Churchill decades before. You know, he was such a, a part of public life for so long and so controversially, changed parties multiple times, reversed his position on key issues was generally seen as a bit of a chancer, you know, as somebody who would who was just not very reliable. And even when he turns up at, in, in May 1940, all the people in Number 10 are going home writing their diaries, are saying, oh, God, you know, I'm very worried. You know, he's got all these terrible friends. Nobody trusts him. It's probably going to go awfully wrong. So, But it's interesting. I've just been reading Chips Chan in Volume 3. This is the 1950s. And he's, you know, he's an old man. He's ill. There are concerns about his health. But he's still making some pretty impressive speeches and still, you know, operating in a very uh, sophisticated way as a parliamentary operator. So I think I suppose we forget also that he was this great parliamentarian, um, that he 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 was a politician to his fingertips, not just a statesman. I agree, and he was also quite political about history itself. I'm sure Jeffrey will talk about this. You know, he famously said, "I intended to be well remembered by history, for I intend to write it." <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, in some ways, that's the theme of a lot of our podcasts, the fact that we're challenging people who try to create the story. I mean, that's inevitable, I suppose. You know, you want you want people to remember you in, in, in a rather complimentary way. 
But it's interesting, even at the time, even you know when he was an active politician, there was an argument about church. It's not today's generation haven't suddenly discovered that he was controversial. He was always controversial. Um, yeah. I guess it got a certain extra twist with uh, when the Black Lives Matter movement happened a few years ago and people decided to start putting graffiti on his statue and really focusing on his attitudes to empire and to India and to, you know, this notion he had of racial superiority between different, not only white people and non-white people, but different types of non-white people. You had this kind of well, elaborate we, pyramid of... Maybe we could explore that, because in some ways it's, it's historical, but I think in some ways maybe he was even out of step with his own contemporaries on some of these issues. But it, almost every generation needs to rediscover Churchill. Uh, and in some ways, Jeffrey's book is not the first revisionist account. They go right back. Uh, I remember Clive Ponting, um, uh, Rose yeah, James. Clive Ponting, yes, the 70s, wasn't it? Uh, or 80s. But, I mean, you know, there have been a lot of people who've challenged the myth. But in some ways, it's I think there's a bit in the book, you know, uh, print the legend, and that's sort of what's happened. That's what people want to read, not necessarily the truth. But we're going to give people the truth today, hopefully. We are, we are. Let's, should we try and go to Jeffrey, see if we can make that interview yeah. dovetail seamlessly with our beautiful introduction? Well, welcome, Jeffrey. Thank you for um, joining us. Not at all. I, I really wanted to start as a lovely paragraph, if you don't mind me flattering you. I just want to start mm-hmm. with a paragraph from your own book, which I hope mm-hmm. sets the scene for the conversation we're going to have. So it's towards the end of your book, um, and you're trying to sum the man up, Churchill. And you have this great line. Um, For so long, a bitterly controversial figure, intensely disliked and distrusted, he was transformed at one extraordinary moment into a superhuman hero, and then gradually acquired an almost mythical status, which made it hard to distinguish fact from fiction. But for its first 40 years, his career was erratic, and largely unsuccessful. His judgment as a wartime strategist was sometimes woeful. His post-war years were unsatisfactory and increasingly sad. His legacy is flawed. His posthumous influence has been little short of disastrous. So far from being a universal oracle of wisdom or virtue, few great men have been wrong so often, have made so many mistakes, or have held so many opinions and prejudices which were repugnant even at the time. Wow. Oh, dear. Did I write that? (laughs) You're a brave man. Why did you write? Why did you write the book? Because I was fascinated by the whole Churchill problem or problems. I mean, for one thing, I I was struck, as anybody must be, by this way that Churchill has become not only a, a, a cult figure, there is, of course, a Churchill cult. Um, the, I've been abused for using that expression as I invented it. The people have been talking about the Churchill cult for 70 or 60 years. Um, and as I, at the end of that quotation just then, I said, I said that all invocations of Churchill in recent times have almost unfailingly led to disaster. But But in any case... I, I was inspired to begin with by one sentence from a great historian, Sir Michael Howard, who wrote, uh, incidentally, he was, he could just, he died three years ago. He was an, an esteemed friend of mine. Um, he, he, he 
could just remember the rise of Hitler. Uh, he uh, was a schoolboy in the summer of 1940. By 1943, he was a subaltern in the Stream Guards and won the military cross leading his men at Salerno. And in the fullness of time, he became a great historian and professor of modern history at Oxford and much else besides. And he said, the problem for the historian is not, as so many Americans seem to think, why Churchill was ignored for so long, but how it was that a man with so dubious a background and so disastrous a track record could have emerged in 1940 as the saviour of his country. And that was, a, that was the problem, which I, uh, I'm not sure that I answered, but at least I addressed it, whereas most of Churchill's hagiographers don't even treat it as a problem. They see him uh, as the noble hero who was almost always right and um, who's a giant among pygmies, pygmies ignored until he had to be chosen in 1940. But, I mean, you're not the first revisionist uh, historian in some ways to look at Churchill. I mean, you quote people like Rhodes James going back, you know, many years. 50 years ago. That is perfectly true. And um, Rhodes James's book, which was controversial at the time, but I think wouldn't be so today. Um, it was called Churchill 1900 to 1939, A Study in Failure. And, and, and I find that difficult to dispute. It led to a terrible falling out between Robert Rhodes James, whom I knew, um, and Randolph Churchill, whom I never knew, Churchill's ne'er-do-well son, who broke off relations when he heard when you realize the nature of the book that Rhodes James was researching. I, I think very many people would now accept that. Um, of course, the, the Churchillians do not accept it. And I, 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 one in particular I have to mention at this point is Andrew Roberts. Now, I should say that he wrote a particularly violent denunciation of my book. And he uh, has always made it clear that he regards Churchill as uh, a, a giant, a genius, a saint, and a hero who was far more often right than wrong throughout his career, up up until 1940. And and his book takes its its title from one of Ch Churchill's more famous and exalted phrases, um, Churchill uh, walking with destiny. In, in Churchill, in his um, book about the Second World War is a very curious book, the Second World War, the six volumes. Churchill said about 10th of May 1940, when he was appointed church prime minister, I felt as if I had been walking with destiny and that my whole life had been a preparation for this trial and this hour. And Lord Roberts, as he now is, divides his book into two parts, the preparation, meaning up to 1940, and uh, the trial thereafter. But I, I mean, in my view, that Churchill's words don't really make sense to me. I mean, I, I, it's hard to see how his career until 1940 had been a preparation for something which was in any case completely unforeseeable. Nobody, you, you, this suggests a, a teleological view of history uh, where all, all outcomes are predetermined beforehand, and that is not the case. No, nobody knew that 
the, the war had the, the Second World War did not have to come, and 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 um, England did not have to stand alone by the summer of 1940. Is there a, sorry, sorry to Is there a danger that people who write about Churchill, in a sense, Lou, take off the historical hat and their ideological elements that come into it, or is this a more recent development? No, I think that's always been a development. I mean, he's been appropriated um, since his exaltation in 1940. He has been endlessly appropriated by other people who read their own political prejudices into him. Um, they're usually on the right. And of course, Churchill was, in his later years, a, a thoroughgoing reactionary and, and racist in, in, in plain language. Um, the example he's supposed to have set in 1940, um, we shall never surrender, is is invoked by all the wrong people for all the wrong reasons. And it, it has led, as I point out, to endless disasters from Suez to Vietnam to Iraq. The Iraq I'd love to, I'd love to ask one yeah. thing, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the man to negotiate a truce between you and Andrew Roberts um, at all. But it's no, no, quite no, no. interesting to read the two books next to each other because mm. um, he would say, oh, I accept everything, the criticism, but look at this great achievement. And you might say, well, I accept there was, there was this achievement, but look at all the other stuff that was terrible before and after. I mean, could it be just a quirk of history that some of Churchill's very worst qualities, the drunken belligerence, the romantic imperial bellicosity, bordering, as you say, on racism, if not outright racism, his moral slipperiness, all the really bad things that you that you skewer him for, could it be that those were the qualities necessary in 1940 to kind of... That's precisely, what, that's precisely what I say in the book. All right. That, 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 that all his... Uh, um, uh, Neville Chamberlain, in a brilliant letter in 1928, said that uh, you don't often find yourself in the company of a, someone of real genius. But Winston is such a man. But he, he has the defect de ses qualités, the defects of his qualities, in a French phrase. Um, I, I, and in 1940, all those defects, which you I won't repeat because you've just enumerated them rather lucidly, did become qualities. Everything that was his 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 obstinacy and pugnacity, which had been wrongly directed again and again against what he managed to be, to, to, to be brutally pugnacious against Ulster Unionists before the Great War and Irish nationalists after the Great War, against the working class during the general strike in 1926, and of course against Indian nationalism and, and the foul race of Hindus, as he once called them. Um, all of these things were wrong and objectionable, but they just came right at that particular moment. The other contradiction, incidentally, in the entire Churchillian myth is when he said in 1946, in his famous Iron Curtain speech at Fulton, Missouri, there never was a war easier to prevent than the one which has just laid waste to so much of the world and caused so much suffering. Well, that's a, a slippery argument, frankly. I mean, you, 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 there is no way of proving, there's no way of disproving it, but there's no way of 
verifying his statement that the war could easily have been prevented. But it's very dubious, seen in historical terms. And anyway, if the war had been prevented, <laughs> Churchill would never have become prime minister and never found his walk with destiny. So that's the absurd contradiction. And, and so it's, there was no possibility that Churchill could become prime minister until until that supreme crisis. For those who haven't read your book, I mean, what is your charge sheet uh, when you when you list some of the failures? Oh well, I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. it's not quite a familiar one. I mean, he um, he, uh, uh, he his early days were spent as a soldier, and he wrote about um, the slaughter of backward peoples in various colonial wars with a zeal which we now find rather unattractive, at least I do. He um, was horribly wrong in his years before the Great War as a radical and an, and an associate of Lloyd George when along, along with plenty of other progressives um, like the Webbs and Shaw and Wells he was obsessed with the, the, the question of eugenics or scientific breeding and advocated the sterilization of, 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 of the socially unfit. Um, something which is, is really the supreme irony in Churchill's most ironical career, because in 1940, in a, in a very great passage, one of his speeches, he said that um, we, if, we, if we fail, all of Europe will, may succumb to a new dark ages made more terrible and prolonged um, by the lights of perverted science. Well, eugenics was perverted science, and we, we do not nowadays find anything to say in praise of those who, who wanted to weed out the socially inferior part of the racial stock, which was the language they used at that time. Then, of course, there was the Great War. Churchill was a bit perceptive, as often, in seeing by the Christmas of 1914 that the Western Front had become a stalemate, where there was simply not going to be a breakthrough, and there was going to be endless, futile slaughter for years to come. Uh, that, that was uh, to his credit that he saw that before most people. But his, his, the problem was that his his answer as always, was a backstairs approach or a roundabout approach, uh, which in this case took the form of Gallipoli. Uh, and the Gallipoli landing uh, was the campaign was a disaster. Uh, it, he, he was not the only person responsible for it, but he he carried the can not unreasonably because um, somebody had to, and he had been uh, very vocal in his advocacy of it. And he continued ever after to say that it had been a brilliant conception, which merely, um, unfortunately, was ill-starred and miscarried in the event. But there's one one answer to that is something that A.J.P. Taylor said. Um, the, the Gallipoli campaign could only have succeeded if it had been fought somewhere else. <laughs> Uh, but 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 another answer is to do something that Churchill himself never did, which is go to Gallipoli, and you've only got to go there as I've done to see the absurdity of trying to land an army on the end of this enormous peninsula which separates the, 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 with the, on the European side of Asia of what was then Turkey 
looking across the, 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 the Hellespont towards Asia Minor. And then had they managed to get ashore, what were they supposed to do? And even if they had reached Constantinople, as it was, and, and knocked Turkey out of the war, why on earth was that going to make any difference? Turkey wasn't an, a significant um, combatant. It was they, Turkey was part of the central, joined the central powers, Germany and Austria-Hungary. But, but it was, if anything, was a hindrance to them rather than a help. It was made no sense whatever. Um, Churchill was wrong about that. He was wrong about the violence after the war, which he he became more and more intemperate after the uh, after the Bolshevik Revolution, for one thing. And he wasn't, of course, wrong about thinking that Soviet communism was a barbarous tyranny and was likely to get worse. Although the, the, the next irony is that having used this uh, zealous language to denounce the horrors of the Bolsheviks, um, within 25 years, he would be embracing Stalin as a great bosom pal. Um, after Stalin had killed far more people than the original Bolsheviks, Lenin and Trotsky ever did. Um, he was uh, intemperate in his desire to crush the IRA during the um in the troubles of 1919 to 21. Then uh, he he created Iraq, if you want to call that an achievement. Um, although, it really, look, looking back, it doesn't seem a very satisfactory one. That is to say that among the remnants of the Ottoman Empire was a territory, part of which had been called Mesopotamia, where we fought a campaign during the Great War. And it was cobbled together from highly disparate elements um, the, 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 from the Kurds in the north to the Marsh Arabs in the south, but with a, a Shiite Muslim majority placed under Sunni rulers, uh, a king which, whom, whom the, the, the British cooked up and, and placed on the throne. He was one of the other people who helped create Iraq. Um, was Gertrude Bell, the most remarkable woman. And, and, and very knowledgeable about the Middle East. And she said at the time something which the Washington neoconservatives forgot 20 years ago. She said that if Iraq were ever to become a democracy, it would disintegrate. <laughs> then the, then, then the, the general strike, when Churchill's language was is, is really deplorable, and he, he treated the the strikers, the miners who were living on starvation wages, I mean, barely enough to, 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 to eat. Uh, and he wanted the general strike crushed, as indeed it was. Um, he became Chancellor of the Exchequer and Baldwin's government in 1924, a role for which his personal finances would have shown that he was peculiarly ill-equipped. Was <laughs> he spent his life living on the very brink financially and was a disastrous gambler, both um, in French casinos and on the stock market. And the return... Can I, I move you to India? I'm sorry, to, I'm just trying to rush a little bit because yeah, yeah. I'm wary of the time limits we have. But also, um, it's so very... You mentioned, you know, the, the, the today is rightly conscious of, of um, the terrible mistakes that were made 
especially towards the end of, of the Raj. But I mm. think you're very strong in the book about India and his lack of, well, his sort of almost abusive attitude and phrases about the Hindu, Hindu population of that country, which is the majority. And, and of course, that leads to the Bengal famine, I mean, which is something that's de- debated a lot. Um, on, you know, and I'm just reading Yasmin Khan's book about the Raj at war and the mm. letters that the Indian troops were fighting for the British, you know, all over the world. They had letters from their communities saying, we have no food. I know. You know? It, it, is, yeah. it, it, is a, it is a terrible story. And, and Churchill's part in it is completely indefensible, although his defenders wriggle this way and that, tr- trying to defend him. I, I, of course, the story of the Bengal famine was complicated. It was not simply caused by the... the the rulers of the Raj, although the the, the viceroy and the commander in chief both pleaded with London for more help to relieve the famine, um, and to cut it short, the one man on whom whose on whose deaf ears these pleas fell was the Prime Minister Churchill. Uh, you you don't have to know anything more about it except for something that Churchill said at the time. There had been reports of another famine on a smaller scale in occupied Greece. And Churchill said, the starvation of anyway underfed Bengalis matters less than that of sturdy Greeks. Uh, He did not think (laughs) black lives did not matter to Churchill. That's astonishing. That is an astonishing phrase. And you, you also draw the parallel in the book to Holland. In 1945, where they they Indeed. move so much to help these people who are starving, and the contrast with Bengal is shocking. It was a, it was a contrast made at the time um, by Lord Wavell, who had been uh, the, the commander in the desert, was removed by Churchill, became um, commander in chief in India, and then viceroy for India. And he he made he said bitterly. You could look look at the contrast between the way that famine is being relieved in Europe and how little was done in Bengal in 1943. Uh, It is not true that Churchill's views were shared by the whole of the English ruling class. That would be far too convenient. There were many members of that class who who distrusted and disliked Churchill and profoundly disagreed with him on episodes like that. And what was your uh, the reaction to your book? I mean, do you think that things have recalibrated as a result of your book and, and others who are challenging some of these myths, or do you I, think? It's- I don't know. It's it, it's um, the, the, the the book has had a rather muted reaction in this reception in this country. Didn't get that many reviews, and they were slightly tepid, apart from Andrew Roberts's very untepid attack on it. Uh, well, you've got very good that- Amazon reviews. From, from ordinary readers. Oh, well, that, that's very nice to know. But, but, but as it happens, among other things, um, I'll try not to mention another time after this, Roberts accused me of, he said my book was relentlessly anti-American. And it's a somewhat ironical reflection on that, that the book has done far better in America than it has here. Um, it, it got a, a most appreciative um anything an author could want review in the New York Times. And as well as others besides, and 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 the it's possible that uh, one might start to impinge on the American cult of Churchill, who was of course invoked by everyone from Donald Trump to 
Rudolf Giuliani, I mean, um, and still is. So there's a disconnect between, in some ways, the American establishment and, in a sense, American readers who are much more open to to these myths being being uh, addressed. Well, I, I, well, at least some are. I mean, I, I don't mean my book hasn't been bought by the entire population of the United States, alas, but it's been bought by plenty of people and, and apparently enjoyed by plenty of people. And it's interesting to me, at any rate, that, 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 that it has done been received more favorably there than here. A lot of the charge sheet um, I was a little bit familiar with from from other books and documentaries, mm. but the financial material, his his his, his financial arrangements, mm. and his sometimes dubious funders, that was a real surprise to me. Um, I mean, do you think he was a crook, or was he, he just didn't care, didn't think the rules applied to him? He didn't think the rules applied to him. That, I think that is definitely the, that's the politer way of saying it than crook. Um, I mean, some of his dealings, I should say very briefly that uh, that uh, fascinating material, I have drawn heavily on other writers, particularly three books, which I can't recommend strongly enough um, in order of publication. They were David Reynolds's book called In Command of History about the where Churchill wrote or supervised the writing of the Second World War after 1945 and the colossal sums of money he made and, and the way that um, he avoided paying any tax on his earnings at a time when everyone else in the country was paying taxes never before. Then there was um, Mr. Churchill's profession by Peter Clark, another Cambridge historian, about Churchill's life as a writer up till 45. And, and the most remarkable in a way is David Locke's book, that's L-O-U-G-H, like an Irish lake, um, um, called uh, No More Champagne, which is about Churchill's professional and financial life. And and, and he shows that he that, that, that Churchill was, his financial life was simply hair-raising. And what is more, his dealings with editors and publishers was uh, sometimes dishonorable and sometimes barely honest. I mean, there's some interesting parallels with Boris Johnson, the slightly different yes. family <laughs> life, the finances, the, uh, saying the rules don't apply, yeah. getting in some ways the big questions right. I mean, you can see why Boris Johnson might identify with him. Well, of course, Boris Johnson identifies with him. I don't think the rest of us are obliged to identify Mr. Johnson with Churchill. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> If ever there was, I mean, you, the, the, Marx's famous phrase about history repeating itself the first time as tragedy, the second time as farce, was inspired by the contrast between the great Napoleon and his nephew, Louis Bonaparte, who became, who, who seized power in France in 1849 and then proclaimed himself emperor. And, and uh, you know, he... Uh, the first Napoleon was a giant. Napoleon the third was a joke. And you could apply those words, I think, to Sir Winston Churchill and Boris Alexander Professional Johnson. Well, I'm, it's, 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 it's slightly off the point, but I, I guess you could say um, that, that uh, in a career where he makes lots of mistakes and, and scandals, he gets one big foreign policy thing right. I would give Johnson Ukraine, which is very Churchillian. Um, it goes against quite a lot of the advice and what the, the European leaders doing and does something rather bold um well, you may not agree but I, I would probably say that 
Well, I know that many people do think that, although I find the way that Johnson in particular, among other um, Western politicians, has been waving the bloody shirt of Ukraine and uh, and is anxious to fight to the last Ukrainian, not entirely admirable. I mean, I can I can see that we don't know. We don't know. Yeah, we, we don't. And you, you have a very good section at the end of reviewing the books on Churchill. And I think mm. you make the point that the best books uh, that have been written, like David Locke's, are looking at very specific areas of his life. And that's where the new research, I mean, new things are being still being said about him, but by focusing on certain areas. Would you say that that's, that's the sort of future now of books about Churchill rather than the book? Uh, yeah, yes, it is. I mean, I think it's- Peter Clark, who I mentioned a moment ago, who pointed out in a piece the other week that there are now more than 60 books in the library catalogues with titles beginning Churchill and Churchill and India, Churchill and Lloyd George, uh, Churchill and America, whatever. And on and on it goes. All of these books, not all of them, but some of them are really excellent um, and, and, and very valuable. What nobody, in my view, has yet written is a definitive biography of Churchill um, in, in, on the scale it deserves to be written and and with the detachment that is required, but very few people seem to be able to achieve. I don't consider my, my, my own book isn't a life of Churchill anyway, and it is not intended to be um, a, a, a work of scholarly detachment. But it's interesting. I and mean, one of the reviews says, you know, Andrew Roberts is the best one volume history, which is pro Churchill. And yours is the best one volume history, which is perhaps more critical. So in some yeah, ways, maybe they can was, never that, be. That, that was the New York Times. It said that mine was the best one volume indictment of Churchill. I, 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 my reaction to that was pensive. Um, authors who complain about unfavorable reviews are bad enough. But for an author to complain about a favourable review would be intolerable. So I was very, <laughs> I was very pleased. I would no, no way would I call your book a hatchet job. Actually, I really wouldn't. I I'm was, very glad you're you say very, that. You're very, you bend over backwards to be nice to him when you when you think he some, merits it. I think some people have said that. Um, yes, that you, that New Yorker review is called. It's, I mean, it's funny. It's oh, like right. the painting. Yeah, isn't it? yeah. You know the story of the painting. I think you write about it. Is it is it Sutherland that is commissioned to do a picture and he goes for the warts and all portrait and he paints his picture and Churchill burns it. Well, Churchill didn't burn it; his wife did. Oh, his wife burnt it. But you talk talk of it being an alternative, and I think that's rather rather than revisionist. I think you're very keen to stress right from the very beginning that this is just another way of looking at Churchill. Well, of course it is, and I don't. I mean, I, the, the last thing I would remotely pre- pretend to be is writing. A, any kind of detached story. I've chosen to look at Churchill in one way, but I am pleased that you say it's not a hatchet job. Only, only one or two other people. One was Rupert Christensen, who's a, a distinguished writer himself, a ballet and opera critic, but who's written a number of very good books on 19th century Paris, for example. And he said, unfortunately, <laughs> on Twitter rather than in a book review, that he said something very flattering about my Jeffrey Wheatcroft's reassessment of Churchill. And please note, it is a reassessment rather than a demolition job. And a reassessment was my intention. Yeah. I never want, never set out to write uh, an indictment or demolition job at all. But I was trying to 
puzzle away at the things we've discussed already. Because also you're in a long tradition, as I say, going back to Rhodes James and earlier and Richard Toy, for example. Mm. And I mean, there's been a book, recent book, Bill Schwartz's The Churchill Myth. So, mm. I mean, you're not alone here if you feel slightly oh, isolated. No, no, I know I'm not. And, and, and um, I, 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 I sometimes, anybody who writes about Churchill might or certainly ought to pause for a moment and ask himself, do we need another book on Churchill? Um, but I, I, I was just so fascinated by the subject I had to write the book and get it off, oh. get it off my chest. Well, I'm very glad you. I'm very glad you wrote it, and I'm very glad you joined us today. We are pretty much out of time, but I would urge anybody to to read this book. Um, even if you're a passionate Churchill fan, you'll learn loads of things about him, um, and and you'll also have some of the things you think you know about him challenged, which is what a great book is, isn't it? Well, I'm very pleased that you say that, and thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Very good. Well, yeah, fascinating discussion. I mean, we sort of ran out of time. I mean, um, he could have had a couple of hours on the charge sheet there. I think maybe we should get Andrew Roberts <laughs> to do one. Perhaps they'd, yes. debate, they'd debate on our podcast, what do you think? Yes. Well, I think the thing is, you know, I think it's very hard to change people's point of view, and everyone's going to select the material that supports their argument. And a lot of it is, as you said, emphasis, you know, um it depends what you think's important uh so yeah i don't know how fruitful that would be i mean i think it's a shame because i think they're both very good historians who uh, have made very strong arguments and it's 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 you know that's one of the joys of history that there's no one one answer i think in jeffrey's book the only bit i would probably think was a bit far was in the way he tries to refer everything in the last 20 years to church, you know, the Iraq war and things like that. I mean, of course, there's a Churchill, you know, had a huge influence on the way people thought and everything was interpreted in terms of, you know, Munich appeasement and we must fight dictators. Well, um, but, but I don't know. It's, it's very my reading of that was that the people, you know, have adopted, uh, you know, Churchill to support their arguments, whether it's Brexit or the United States of Europe, whatever it is. And I think that's inevitable with, with someone who's so complex, uh, and, you know, we've made lots of contradictory remarks and also is operating in another context, another era. So, uh, no, I thought it was rather interesting the way that people had hijacked them for their own political cause. And I think there is a danger that people who uh, do write about Churchill do so not as completely independent, but as people who've got an agenda and use him to support that agenda. Uh, and, and that's not true just of the politicians, but I think some of the historians as well. And I'm not sure that's what historians should be doing. Interesting. And that raises wider issues about, you know, historians and politics and how far they should keep their hands clean. I mean, our culture war today, the fashionable phrase for it, um, is further sort of heightened by the way people get so angry instantly with each other on social media, um, which of course didn't used to be like that. So you have to take a side. And, and, no, and we, I think we talked about this in our very first introduction show, that actually there's less meeting of minds. You know, I remember being taught at university in the late 70s, early 80s by, you know, a very conservative historian, David Canadine, and a very radical left-wing historian, Vic Gattrell. But they would kind of like talk and, and quite enjoy the, the, the different interpretations they would have, say, of the British Empire. And it didn't seem as nasty. Maybe it was. I don't know. What do you think? No, I do think it was. I think, you know, and let's hope we can get back to tolerance and, and, and you know, respecting other people's point of view. 
because, yeah, I mean, everyone sees things in a slightly different light. And I think part of history is about trying to persuade people to follow your view, but not not necessarily to, to, to disparage it. Um, but, yeah, I, th- I think one of the, the great things about reading history is it does open your mind to other points of view and other ways of looking at things. I mean, if you just think of how the history of dry pass at Cambridge has changed since we were there 40 years ago, you know, it's a much, much more open um ironically it's a much wider syllabus and yet in some ways you say people have more entrenched views and i think you know that's why it's so unfair i think to call jeffrey's work a hatchet job you know what he does is he makes you look at the bits that in the past you probably just cringed at um you know like the the racist language you know it's always been there in some of these documents people have chosen not to focus on it and they said to themselves oh well you know that was a man of his time and that's how people were but you know it, it was wrong then and it's wrong now and it's i think it's absolutely right that he should look and dig into those difficult and embarrassing areas of, of his subject's life uh, absolutely and it's very much what i've tried to do with my books i mean everyone with Mountbatten was saying these are rumors about his bisexuality his paedophilia um uh and dismissed it you know that this was just gossip and yet now not even with just with my book but since i mean there's even pieces in the paper today about policemen coming forward saying a member of the royal family was investigated in the 1970s for pedophilia again with edward the eighth people said well he wasn't a nazi stooge and now again it's been recalibrated uh yes. so um uh, I think people do ignore things. I mean, I think the, the, I actually represented David Locke's book on his finances. Uh, and it's, it's absolutely damning, you know, how he was fiddling the tax system and, you know, taking money from people when, when he didn't need it. Uh, you know, dishonest behavior, frankly. Uh, and he would have been drummed out of parliament if he'd been open. I mean, at least we also have a more, uh, there's more um, transparency now. There's more scrutiny of our politicians, less deference, and I think he was a be- he benefited from that. He he was able to get away with it in a way Boris Johnson hasn't been able to. Yeah, no, no, I absolutely agree with that. And you know, think of some of the other shows we've done, like the the Profumo show. You know, this is a time where if you're in the charm circle, you could get away with so much misbehaviour or even Ill- quasi illegal activity, uh, both financial and sexual. But if you were not in the charm circle, you had no power, nobody would look out for you, and you could be crushed like a bug. So, yeah, I'd definitely rather live in this world. Oh, God. Yeah. And then it's accepting one of the interesting things about the Lord Lucan show was, you know, that everyone assumed he behaved a certain way. He wasn't actually protected, as might have expected, as a member of the establishment. Uh, And, in fact, he suffered, you know, under a prejudice. So I suppose history is more complicated than, than, than one imagines. Well, having agreed with each other that all our shows are fascinating, let's hope people keep watching <laughs> and listening to them. And the Different next time we talk, by the way, the next time we talk, I will be on the other side of the world. How ex- that's exciting! Yes, well, there are not many podcasts that have come to you from from two different parts of the world. Well, uh, without giving too much away, I think one of our upcoming shows is going to be me in Australia, you in London, and Katya Hoyer in Berlin. <laughs> yes, yes, international. This is an international show. Yes, so. Um, yeah, that's a very, very program coming up. So I hope people will will, will tune in, subscribe, uh, and let us continue to bring all these wonderful guests. Thank you. Well, let's do that. See you soon. See you soon. Good trip. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Scandalmongers podcast. This has been a podcast world production. 
You can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org, placing scandalmongers in the heading, or via our social media links within the show's bio. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.